Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the London School of Economics for this public lecture hosted by the Q8 Programme on Development, Governance and Globalization in the Gulf States. My name is Christian Ulrichsen, and I'm the Q8 Research Fellow on the Programme. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Eugene Rogan to the LSE to deliver this public lecture on Obama and the Arabs, the historical context. Dr. Rogan is the director of the Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and a faculty fellow and university lecturer in the history of the modern Middle East. His research focuses on the social and economic history of the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire and of the Arab states in the 20th century. He's the editor of the new Cambridge University Press book series, The Contemporary Middle East, and the author of numerous books, including Frontiers of the State in the Late Ottoman Empire, Transjordan, 1850-1921, and co-editor, along with Professor Avi Schlem, of The War for Palestine, rewriting the history of 1948. His most recent book, published this month, is The Arabs, A History, <coughs> copies of which are for sale in the foyer outside, and Dr. Rogan will be happy to sign any copies for you afterwards. Uh, the format of the event tonight is that Dr. Rogan will speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, followed by a question and answer session. Uh, the event is being recorded. We hope to have a podcast and a video available on the website within the next few days. Dr. Rogan, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christian, for a very kind and generous introduction. You only left one detail out, if I may, which is that actually this is something of a return for me to the LSE. I, as part of my undergraduate experience, was one of those lost Americans who came to the LSE on the general course and spent my junior year abroad here, sort of commuting from South London and into uh, Houghton Street. And all I can say is this college brushes up so nicely. <laughs> this is a much more beautiful and much more polished LSE than anything I remember from my undergraduate days in 1980. So it's, it's lovely to be back with you and a great honor to be speaking to the Kuwait program. So thank you. My subject tonight is of very current interest, but I approach it as a historian. But when you write a book on the history of a place, you find that most people's interest really stems from where we are here and now. And I thought that really through the election of President Obama and the change of policies that that has involved, we might have a hook by which to interest you in the history of the region as well. Now, the Arab world had long aspired to a significant change in American foreign policy towards the Muslim world. Since 9-11, the neoconservative government of George W. Bush had pursued policies hostile to the Arab and the Islamic world. For most in the Arab world, the American-led war on terror was nothing short of a war on Islam. And uh, when Barack Obama went to Cairo last June, many people believed that the moment of change had arrived. We needed a time of tension between the United States and Muslims around the world, Obama told his audience at Cairo University. Tensions rooted in historical forces that go beyond any current policy debate. Now, there were many things that won Barack Obama over to his audience in Cairo. For one thing, they were totally amazed that the same United States that had twice chosen to elect George W. Bush would vote for such a man. First time that we had an African-American 
to lead the nation in its highest office. They were also further amazed that the Americans would choose a man with not just one, but with two Arab names. Think about it. You've been dealing with Jimmy and Ronald and, let's see, uh, Bills and, and two Georges. And who in their right mind would have predicted eight years ago that there would be someone called Barack Hussein as the President of the United States of America? It was Obama's very background that made many in the Arab world believe that the new American president might actually share some of their values. And if they had troubled to read his 1995 memoirs, uh, Dreams from My Father, they would have read a lot of things that they could relate to. They, they would see how as an African-American of Kenyan origins, how removed he felt from Europe when he first came to visit here. How critical he was of European imperialism, themes that reappear uh, frequently in, in his book. And in these ways, one might almost say that Obama hearkened back to an earlier American president who had also inflamed the hopes and captured the imaginations of the Arab people. And this, of course, was President Woodrow Wilson. Among the peacemakers in Paris in 1919, American President Woodrow Wilson spoke with an idealism that electrified people under foreign domination right around the world. In his address to a joint session of the American Congress delivered in January 1918, Wilson set out a vision of a world uh, guided by American post-war policies in 14 famous points. He declared an end to the day of conquest and aggrandizement, and asserted the radical view that in colonial matters, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the claims of the imperial power. Wilson addressed Arab aspirations in his 12th point, assuring them an absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. For many in the Arab world, this was their first encounter with the emerging American superpower that would so come to dominate the 20th century. As the world assembled in Paris to work out the terms of peace, the Arabs looked to Woodrow Wilson as the standard bearer of their aspirations. Now, of course, Wilson disappointed the Arab world. The United States did nothing to prevent the partition of Arab lands and their division between France and Britain. Nor did America come to the assistance of the Arab world in its quest for independence during the interwar years. When the United States returned to Arab affairs after the Second World War, it was as a dominant power that sought to subordinate the Middle East to America's Cold War priorities. Yet, with the election of Barack Obama, the United States seemed to be on the threshold of a new era of positive engagement with the Arab world. I have come here, he told his Cairo audience, to seek a new beginning between the United States and Muslims around the world, one based upon mutual interest and mutual respect. He spoke of years of mistrust and of the need to say openly the things we hold in our hearts. There must be a sustained effort to listen to each other, to learn from each other, to respect one another, to seek common ground. Now this language of mutual respect and understanding represented a remarkable reversal of the policies that had prevailed in the Bush administration. 
Gone was the language of the war on terror. Obama formally instructed his staffers to abandon the use of the expression. Gone was the ambiguity over torture that had really cost America its moral authority on issues relating to human rights during the Bush years. Gone was the talk of an axis of evil or the clash of civilizations. The new American president pursued a policy of engagement with the international community. Dialogue with states with which the United States differed, and a resolution to the conflicts that destabilized the Middle East as a region and its relationship with the United States in particular. Already poll results suggested that Arab views of the United States had undergone a kind of tectonic shift since the election of Barack Obama. Obama's initiatives to close the Guantanamo Bay facility and to withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq had um, resulted in surges in America's approval ratings right across the Middle East. In such different countries as Syria, Qatar, and Egypt, where U.S. approval ratings had actually fallen to single-digit figures in the Bush years, um, public opinion polls taken by the Gallup Agency showed a marked increase in approval, up to 15% in Syria, up to 22% in Qatar, and up to 25% in Egypt. The most dramatic increases in public opinion in the Arab world were actually in Algeria and Tunisia, which sort of posted gains of 22 or 23%. A Zogby poll taken 100 days into Obama's presidency found yet more support for the new administration. In Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Lebanon, and Morocco, more than 50% of respondents claim to have a more positive view of the USA since the election of Barack Obama. Yet, as these figures demonstrate, Obama still faced a tremendous barrier of mistrust when he went to Cairo. Um, between the Gallup and the Zogby polls, basically the only country that reported an overall majority view of support for the United States was the UAE. So really, support of the US, or a positive view of the US, was a distinct minority in every other Arab state polled. Clearly, Obama had his work cut out for him, as he took to the podium in Cairo, to win over skeptical audiences in the Arab and the Muslim world. Nowhere more so than in Egypt, where even in 2009, some 78% of the public held an unfavorable opinion of the United States. No single speech can eradicate years of mistrust, Obama told his audience at Cairo University. Nor can I answer in the time that I have all the complex questions that have brought us to this point. Now, of course, Obama's outreach to the Arab world did not begin with his speech in Cairo. Already on the 27th of January, literally just one week after he had taken the oath of office, Obama gave an interview to the El Arabiya TV, satellite TV station, to address Arab audiences and a global audience. Already he was speaking of a new partnership with the Arab world, based on mutual respect and mutual interest. These are the sort of buzzwords of the new Obama approach. He showed a willingness to criticize past American actions, a sort of self-critical reflect. All too often, uh, the United States starts by dictating, he told Arab TV viewers, and we don't always know all the factors that are involved. And he acknowledged the strain in U.S.-Arab relations 
when he said there was no reason why America could not restore, and I quote, the same respect and partnership that America had with the Muslim world as recently as 20 or 30 years ago. Again, what a telling statement. I mean, in effect, he is saying that for the past 20 or 30 years, there has been neither respect nor balance in relations between the United States and the Arab world. And herein lies the appeal of Obama's message to the Arab world in the recognition of the historic roots of the Arab malaise of the 21st century and of America's special place in that malaise. Now, I hope to be forgiven for bringing the discussion of current affairs back to what is, for me, the more familiar terrain of history. But I've been spending the past 20 years of my career teaching Middle Eastern history, and I have just written this book. However, like President Obama, I believe that an appreciation of the historic background is essential for addressing current affairs and the complex issues bedeviling the Middle East. Western policymakers and intellectuals need to pay far more attention to history if they hope to remedy the ills that affect the region today. All too often in the West, we discount the current value of history. As political commentator George Will has written, when Americans say of something, that's history, what they usually mean is, that's irrelevant. And nothing could be further from the truth. Indeed, people in the West need to pay far more attention to the way that history has been experienced and understood by the Arabs themselves if you wish to come to terms with Arab problems. This could spare them not from repeating history so much as from repeating historic mistakes. In injuring Middle Eastern politics, any Western leader needs to come to terms with the historic grievances that have shaped contemporary Arab political culture. The Arab people, the late Lebanese journalist Samir Kassir wrote, are haunted by a sense of powerlessness. Permanently aflame, it is the badge of their malaise. Powerlessness to suppress the feeling that you are no more than a lowly pawn on the global chessboard, even as the game is being played in your own backyard. Unable to achieve their aims in the modern world, the Arabs basically see themselves as pawns in the game of nations, played, uh, forced to play by other people's rules. Now, this is not an entirely new phenomenon. The Arabs have negotiated the modern age, largely by the rules set by the dominant powers of the day. In this sense, modern Arab history really begins with the Ottoman conquests in the 1500s, when the Arabs first came to be ruled by an external power and from a non-Arab city, from Istanbul. The European imperial powers and the superpowers of the Cold War era each perpetuated the subordination of the Arab world to outside rules. After five centuries of playing by other people's rules, the Arabs aspired to mastery over their own destiny, such as they had enjoyed in the first five centuries of Islam. But most Arabs today would tell you that they feel they've never been farther from achieving that goal than they are today. And so when Obama expressed his appreciation of the accomplishments of Islamic civilization and acknowledged the tensions between the United States and the Muslims that were rooted in historical forces that go beyond any current policy debate, he was in fact speaking directly to the sources of the Arab malaise of the 21st century. The success of Obama's first overtures to the Arab world can be traced to his acknowledgement of the present significance of Arab history. Obama's Cairo speech addressed seven issues, 
which he believed of mutual concern to the United States and the Muslim world. America's security from violent extremism connected to the future of US troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Israel-Palestine conflict, the threat of nuclear weapons, democracy, religious freedom, women's rights, and economic development. Of these issues, three really stand out as, of historic, as areas of historic conflict between the Arabs and the dominant powers of the day. The role of foreign armies in the Arab world, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the place of democracy in the Arab world. In these areas, the new US administration is most in need of historic grounding if it's to avoid historic mistakes. Now, Obama has received most support in the Arab world for his pledge to withdraw troops from Iraq by 2012. I've made it clear to the Iraqi people that we pursue no bases and no claims on their territory or resources, Obama explained in Cairo. Iraq's sovereignty is its own. Now, this was a particularly sensitive point across the Arab world in Iraq, where Britain effectively went to war against the military government of Rashid Ali al Kailani in 1941 to preserve their base rights and to overthrow Kailani's pro-German government at the height of World War II, but also in Egypt, where the British had fought a violent conflict against both the police and armed volunteers to preserve their bases along the Suez Canal in 1951 and 1952. The French, too, had violated the sovereignty of the Syrians and the Lebanese refusing to hand over control of the military in both countries, even after they had secured nominal independence in 1943. In the early years of the Cold War, in the 1950s, the United States, for its part, was determined to secure a treaty of military alliance binding the states of the Middle East to the West and not seeing them drift into the orbit of the Soviet Union. Yet the Middle East Defense Organization, the Baghdad Pact, even the Eisenhower Doctrine, all foundered on Arab opposition to foreign military intervention in the Arab world. When the government of President Camille Shamoun invoked the Eisenhower Doctrine and called for American intervention in the Lebanese Civil War of 1958, the US responded by sending in the Marines. However, the Marines remained in Lebanon for only three months and left without firing a shot in anger. So it was a kind of intervention that wasn't likely to provoke a kind of violent response from the Lebanese population at large. The next US intervention in Lebanon, after the Sabra and Shatila massacres in 1982, would prove less successful by far. On the 23rd of October, 1983, some 241 US servicemen, along with scores of French soldiers, were killed when a suicide bomber drove a truck laden with explosives into the heart of the Marine compound. Within four months, US President Ronald Reagan withdrew all American service personnel. His Middle East policies left in tatters. When America returned to the Middle East, it would be in the strategic oil-producing regions of the Persian Gulf. The US Navy took up positions in the Gulf during the Iran-Iraq War that raged from 1980 to 1988 to ensure the smooth flow of Kuwaiti and Saudi oil to global markets. But it was the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990 
that provoked the first truly destabilizing American military presence in the region. Some 450,000 U.S. service men and women were assembled in Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Qatar to launch an air, sea, and ground war to drive Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. In the aftermath of the Desert Storm War, tens of thousands of American troops remained in bases in the region. Now, it's important to stress how much concern this provoked because many in the region saw an American military base presence as something that would grow over time increasingly permanent, such as they had become in places like the Philippines, in West Germany. The last thing that the Arab world wanted to see was a permanent American base presence in the heart of the Persian Gulf. This is undoubtedly the cause of the alienation between Osama bin Laden and the Saudi monarchy, which led to the conflict and arguably uh, a conflict between him and the Saudi government and then the larger sort of Al-Qaeda conflict with the United States. Now what these historic examples serve to demonstrate is that far from upholding Western interests in the Arab world, a foreign troop presence produces tremendous instability in the region and serves as a focus of domestic resistance against foreign occupation. So one hopes that President Obama will keep to his promises on troop withdrawal in the interest of regional stability. But what we can say is that Obama calmed one of the prevailing fears in the Arab world by his pledge to withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq without trying to seek any base presence or base rights in that country. There are, of course, grounds for concern in the recent resurgence of violence in Iraq as America is reducing its troop presence. But even the government in Baghdad seems to believe that it will be better positioned to combat an insurgency if it doesn't have to do so under the specter of a foreign military occupation. In making the Palestinian-Israel conflict a first-term priority for his administration, Barack Obama was addressing an issue burdened with a long history of one-sided U.S. policies. And Obama's poll rating suggested that he did not enjoy the confidence of the Palestinian people. Unlike nearly every other country polled by both Gallup and uh, Zogby in February and March 2009, the Palestinian territories actually recorded a marked decline in approval ratings for the U.S. government. Which is to say they, they thought less of the American government in March 2009 under Barack Obama than they had in August 2008 under George Bush. Of course, Palestinians were still recovering from the trauma of the very violent Gaza war of December 2008, January 2009, in which 1,300 Palestinians, actually more than 1,300 Palestinians, and 13 Israelis were killed. Not even the election of a sympathetic African-American president could calm Palestinian rage at the devastating Gaza war. And here, words clearly would not be enough. There would need to be actions. Obama gave his Cairo audience and the Palestinians watching on live TV beyond a mixed message. He started by reaffirming America's commitment to Israel, a bond he termed unbreakable. Yet Obama's reflections on the plight of the Palestinians and the legitimacy of their political aspirations went further than any American president in office, any serving American president had ever, had ever made. So let there be no doubt, 
he assured his Cairo audience. The situation for the Palestinian people is intolerable. He spoke of the daily humiliations, large and small, that come with occupation. He acknowledged the suffering of refugees who for more than 60 years have endured the pain of dislocation. And he reaffirmed his administration's commitment to a two-state solution where Israelis and Palestinians each live in peace and security. That, he claimed, is in Israel's interest, Palestine's interest, America's interest, and the world's interest. Now, to achieve this settlement, Obama called on the Palestinians to abandon the path of violence to try and secure their political, go uh, political gains. And he called on the Arab world at large to live by their commitments to normalize relations with the Jewish state as part of a global resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. But his challenge to Israeli policies proved sterner yet. Israelis must acknowledge that just as Israel's right to exist cannot be denied, neither can Palestine's. The United States does not accept the legitimacy of continued Israeli settlements. This construction violates previous agreements and undermines the effort to achieve peace. It is time for these settlements to stop. Now, in singling out settlements as a red line, Barack Obama had clearly picked the one issue about which he felt confident he could gain broad support in the United States and abroad. Poll results suggest that neither Israeli nor American citizens actually support the extension of settlements in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Nor is there particular support for the settlement movement on Capitol Hill. Obviously, policies inimical to the interests of Israel raise great problems on Capitol Hill. But there are not many congressmen and senators who really want to go to battle to defend the settlement movement. Moreover, Obama had gone a long way to reverse a shift in American policies that had been most harmful to peacemaking in the Middle East, which was a growing acceptance of Israeli settlements in occupied Palestinian territories. So he'd picked the good fight, but he'd also put down a marker which really reversed a long-running trend in which America was increasingly coming to legitimize the settlement movement. Let me explain. In the aftermath of the 1967 war, the American view of the occupied territories was that they needed to be ruled in conformity with the Geneva Conventions. And within that, the United States concurred with the international community in viewing the construction of any settlements on occupied Arab land as a violation of the Geneva Conventions and as such against international law. The American position was actually quite clear right through the 19th, well, after 67 through the 1970s. This position was maintained right through the presidency of Jimmy Carter, who, as you may recall, served from 1976 to 1980. It was under Ronald Reagan that America began to moderate its views or its policies towards settlements. His administration declared settlements not illegal, but a hindrance to the pursuit of peace. I think the word they used was it's unuseful, unhelpful. But it's, that's quite a different word from saying illegal. Although President uh, George H.W. Bush, so the father of the last President Bush, and his Secretary of State James Baker were noteworthy for having taken a strong stand against settlements. They withheld 
uh, loan guarantees worth $10 billion to Israel on condition that Israel not apply such funds to the construction of settlements in the occupied territories. The fact of the matter was that position was later reversed. The loan guarantees were made and the settlements continued apace. Even during the Oslo years, where the Israelis and the Palestinians came closest to a genuine land for peace agreement, the settlement movement only escalated. Indeed, the Oslo years marked the greatest expansions of settlements experienced yet. Between 1993 and 2000, the number of settlers in the West Bank and in Jerusalem increased by 52%, rising from 247,000 in what, 1993, to a figure in excess of 375,000 by the year 2000. The nadir of America's position on settlements came in George W. Bush's letter to Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon when he gave de facto recognition to some of the settlements as now representing integral parts of the State of Israel. He wrote in a letter to Sharon, in light of new realities on the ground, including already existing major Israeli population centers, it is unrealistic to expect that the outcome of final status negotiations will be a full and complete return to the armistice lines of 1949, Bush asserted in 2004. And of course, giving the Israelis every incentive to continue to change realities on the ground to achieve those strategic objectives they held in the occupied territories. Now, Obama knew that America faced a credibility problem with the Palestinians and with the Arab world more generally in playing the role of honest broker in any attempt to revive an Arab-Israeli peace process. To prove his bona fides, he called for a total freeze on all Israeli settlement construction. The Arab world took that as a benchmark by which to judge the seriousness of purpose of the new president to keep his promises to deliver. And of course, they're still waiting. When he turned to the promotion of democracy in the Arab world, President Obama knew he was still on delicate ground with his Cairo audience. I know there has been controversy about the promotion of democracy in recent years, he acknowledged, and much of this controversy is connected to the war in Iraq. So let me be clear. No system of government can be or should be imposed upon one nation by any other. Now, there's a widespread misconception about the Arab world that the Arabs are somehow hostile to democracy or to representative government. A brief survey of modern Arab history suggests that nothing could be further from the truth. One of the earliest proponents of political participation and constitutional reform was the Egyptian cleric Rifat Tahatawi, who studied in Paris for five years between 19, uh, 1826 and 1831. So we're talking the first half of the 19th century. Tahatawi returned to Egypt and wrote a hugely influential tract published in both Arabic and in Turkish on the customs and manners of the French. In his study, now available in a brilliant translation uh, by Daniel Newman called An Imam in Paris. It's Saki Books that brought it out. and It's actually well worth the read. In this study, 
um, Tahtawi extolled the virtues of French democracy of the Second Republic. The reformist cleric was captivated by the way the French Constitution promoted the rights of the common citizen, rather than reinforcing the dominance of the elites. Among the articles of the Constitution, the most impressed Tahtawi were those asserting the equality of all citizens before the law, and of the eligibility of all citizens to hold any office in state, irrespective of its rank. So you could be a modest person and still aspire to high office in your government through the democratic process. This, to him, was a source of great strength in French society. The possibility of such upward mobility, he maintained, would encourage people to study and learn so that they might reach a higher position than the one that they currently occupy and help to keep the civilization from stagnating. Tahtawi went further, praising French rights of free expression, which is again an integral part of what we think of as a, a democratic arena, a democratic political field. The Constitution, he explained, encouraged everybody to freely express his opinion, knowledge, and feelings. The medium by which most Frenchmen were able to do this, Tahtawi continued, was something called a journal or a gazette. What Tahtawi was doing was introducing his Arab and Turkish readers to the everyday phenomenon to us of the newspaper. They had not heard of one before. Um, it was the power of the press to hold people to account for their actions that struck Tahtawi as truly remarkable. When someone does something great or despicable, the journalists write about it so that it becomes known by both the notables and the common people to encourage the person who did good or to make the person who has done a despicable thing to forsake his ways. And if only journalists could still write in that kind of language, I'm sure newspapers would still be in safe hands. Tahtawi's book set in motion debates about constitutional reform in Egypt and in the Ottoman Empire that by the 1870s had led to the convening of representative bodies and constitutional rule. True, these were fragile beginnings. Ottoman Sultan Abdul Hamid II suspended the constitution and dissolved parliament within a year of their promulgation. And Egypt's first experiment in constitutional rule was effectively aborted by the Urabi Revolution and the British occupation of 1882. But neither were those experiments forgotten in Egypt and the Ottoman Empire. In both cases, revolutionary movements restored constitutional rule and parliamentary politics. In the Ottoman Empire came in 1908 with the Young Turk Revolution. And of course in Egypt it had to wait to the period between 1919 and 1923. Indeed, the interwar years were in many ways the height of parliamentary democracy right across the Arab world. These were the years of Egypt's liberal age, a party pluralism, frequent elections, and widespread press freedoms. In Iraq, elected bodies ratified the country's treaty with Britain, and elected legislature assisted the new monarchy of King Faisal I. The French encouraged elections and the formation of parliaments in Syria and Lebanon. But in many ways, the British and French were too enthusiastic about democracy and elected government in their Arab possessions. Or rather, they did not match their enthusiasm for the form of democracy with giving such political institutions real power, real authority, real decision-making power. And in this way, the British and French undermined the credibility and the legitimacy of democratic forms of government.
by ensuring that elected legislatures would be compliant bodies to rubber stamp the policies of the imperial power. For many in the Arab world, parliaments were actually just a vehicle for foreign domination rather than a vehicle of representative government that would empower the people. When, by the 1950s, the multi-party politics of Egypt, Syria, and Iraq had been toppled by military men heading revolutionary republics, few mourned the passing of a political system tarred by association with the hated colonial past. Over the intervening decades, authoritarian rule in Arab states has given rise to a number of important democracy movements. The urge for democracy and de democratic reform in the Arab world did not die with the revolutionary republics of the 1950s. And in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, one continues to find important intellectuals arguing for the need of greater political participation in their societies. But their work, already pretty dangerous, given the crackdown by strong state security apparatuses, um, was further compromised by American and European policies that were supportive of the status quo and of the Arab governments of the day, regardless of their political or human rights records. When in the aftermath of 9-11, the Bush administration began to openly call for democratization in the Arab world, the new policies actually raised grave concern across the Arab world. After Bush declared an open-ended war on terror, they came to see the Bush vision of democratization as another vehicle for foreign domination, rather as it had been in the days of British and French imperialism. The fact that Bush used democratization as one of his main justifications for going to war in Iraq only confirmed their worst suspicions. But in a sense, Iraq wasn't the ultimate betrayal of Arab democracy. One could argue that in the project of overthrowing the despotic rule of Saddam Hussein and putting in motion a process of government chosen by the vote in Iraq, there was a gain there that might yet be able to produce fruitful results. I would argue the ultimate betrayal of the Arab democratization movement came subsequent to the Iraq war. Firstly, in Palestine, when Hamas surprised the entire world by securing overwhelming victory in what all election monitors declared to be a free and fair and open election. When Hamas leader Ibrahim Haniyeh became prime minister, he was faced by preconditions by the United States and the European Union, both of which had branded Hamas as a terrorist organization. When Hania refused to recognize Israel's right to exist, to end armed resistance, or to accept the terms of the roadmap, both the US and the EU refused to recognize his government and effectively cut off the flow of aid to the Palestinian Authority. It was the beginning of a crisis in Palestinian politics that's resulted in the current partition of Gaza from the West Bank, where you have Fatah in rule in one part, Hamas in the other, further undermining the scope for a meaningful peace process between Israel and the divided Palestinians. But I think the critical point in terms of democracy reform is that we have a clear case of an Arab people going to the polls and freely expressing their opinion, and the United States and the international community simply not being willing to accept the will of the people. It's not just that whatever one thinks of Hamas, it is the betrayal of the principle of democracy 
that made all of the talk about democratization seem somehow to be a lie. The second American betrayal of, America, of Arab democracy came in Lebanon, where a pro-American democracy movement, well, if not pro-American, certainly sympathetic to the West, rose in the aftermath of the 2005 assassination of former Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri. The May 17 movement pressed for a full Syrian withdrawal and new elections with the full support of the White House. The White House called this the Cedar Revolution, which all my Lebanese friends tell me they hate as an expression. They call it the independence intifada. But the talk about a Cedar Revolution was a sort of CNN speak that the Bush White House adopted and tied to the Orange Revolution which had gone on in the Ukraine as part of that unstoppable march towards democracy that the Bush administration insisted was the fruit of its policies. But within a year, literally within the year, the United States abandoned the democratically elected government of Lebanon and left them to face a massive Israeli bombardment in the summer of 2006 following an unprovoked Hezbollah attack against Israeli positions in northern Israel. Not only did the United States fail to restrain Israel or call for a ceasefire, they would not even allow the United Nations to call for a ceasefire. But they expedited the shipment of smart weapons and cluster bombs to facilitate Israel's destruction of Lebanese infrastructure and the Shiite southern suburbs of Beirut, with the killing of thousands and the displacement of hundreds of thousands. America, it seemed, was only interested in democracy where it could be used to ensure compliance to its policies in the Arab world. It was thus important for Obama to reassure his Cairo audience that in this way as well, the American administration had turned a new leaf. America respects the right of all peaceful and law-abiding voices to be heard around the world, even if we disagree with them. And we will welcome all elected, peaceful governments, provided they govern with, with respect for all their people. That's not an unconditional acceptance of Arab democracy, but at least it showed a new willingness to talk to parties with which the United States disagreed. Okay, to conclude, where are we after Obama's speech? Well, there's no doubt that Barack Obama's speech in Cairo raised expectations across the Arab world of a new age of positive engagement between the United States and the region. They were grateful to him for making it a priority to speak to the Muslim world from an Arab capital with his first, within his first hundred days in office. They seemed to like him. They applauded his every reference from the Quran and gave the president the warmest of ovations. The Arab press gave his lecture a warm endorsement as well. And political leaders from across the spectrum, a spectrum welcomed the change in tone, but made clear that they were still waiting to see results, waiting to see changes in the actual policies. Ammar Musawi, one of the foreign policy officials of the Shiite movement in Lebanon, Hezbollah, gave Obama the benefit of the doubt. He said, there's no doubt that we find certain traits that are distinguished in the character of Obama, that he is no repetition of former U.S. presidents. When we listen to his speeches, we certainly note something new. There is no doubt that there is a change in tone, but it is doubtful that there will be a change in policy. If change were to take place, it would not be in Cairo University. It would have to be in the U.S. Congress. 
So take note, President Obama, that your listeners in the Arab world are very smart, very savvy people who have very high expectations of you. And the real danger in the aftermath of Obama's Cairo speech is the heightened expectations he's created across the Arab world of significant change in U.S. policies in the resolution of intractable, intractable problems that have dogged the region. This is nowhere more apparent today than in Palestine. And as The Guardian covered uh, last month, there was a memo leaked from a Fatah official named Mohammed Ghanem, dated the 12th of October, in which he claimed that all hopes placed in the new U.S. administration and President Obama have evaporated, and claimed Obama couldn't withstand the pressure of the Zionist lobby, which led to a retreat from his previous positions on halting settlement construction and defining an agenda for the negotiations and peace. So already from within the ranks of Fatah, the nominally moderate side of Palestinian politics, a real concern that in all the waffling about what, whether Israel was offering represented enough of a concession on settlements to be able to restart negotiations, or whether, as Obama had said earlier, freeze means freeze, remains to be seen. But it's not, it's not building confidence in the Palestinian territories, and their expectations are plummeting, which makes things very volatile and dangerous in Palestine. Indeed, Netanyahu's unwillingness to budge on the settlement freeze, Secretary Clinton's mixed signals, have cost the new administration a great deal of credibility right across the Arab world. It's clear that Obama is now unable to force the Israeli government to concede this point. The alternatives are either continued stalemate in the Palestinian-Israeli arena, with Israel continuing to erode a viable Palestinian state through settlements and the construction of the barrier wall, or Obama reversing his position on the settlement freeze. After the heightened expectations of last June's speech, the dashed hopes risk provoking Palestine's next crisis. And time is definitely running out on this issue. Democracy reformers, too, fear that President Obama will fail to live up to his promises. We are very disgruntled with President Obama, a labor leader in Egypt, who was jailed by the Egyptian government for having led a strike earlier this year, claimed. He went on to say, he's given the regime the green light to do what it wants with the Egyptian people. But democracy is not the agenda. Ayman Noor, you may recall, was arrested by the Mubarak regime for his efforts to contest the last Egyptian presidential election. Uh, also expressed his disappointment with the Obama administration. He said, his reduced talk of democracy is giving these non-democratic regimes the security that they won't face pressure, and that is having a negative impact on democracy in the Arab world. Now, one of the strengths of Obama's approach to the Middle East has been his recognition of how issues in the region are all intricately interconnected, that one needs to address the Iranian nuclear issue to reassure Israeli security concerns, to force concessions in Israel's negotiations with the Palestinians, that you need to talk to Syria and Iran in order to achieve meaningful progress in Lebanon, that democracy is tied to development, and that a stable Middle East is the best way to undermine the terror threat that still preoccupies his government in Washington. But there's always the risk, by trying to take everything on at once, that you actually won't succeed to fix anything. And it's a dangerous proposition to raise expectations and then to disappoint. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much for such a powerful and fascinating uh, lecture. Uh, we have about 35 to 40 minutes for questions. Um, there are stewards with roving microphones, so if you do want to ask a question, uh, please wait for them to arrive, and then if you could state your name and, if necessary, your affiliation, uh, we'll get started. There's a question over there. Hello, I'm Jennifer Quigley-Jones. Considering your view of troop presence as detrimental, I was wondering what you thought about McChrystal's plans um, and whether they're doomed to fail even if there's a change in program and they're supposed to support Islamic communities or anything like that. Do you still think it's doomed to fail? So let's bring Afghanistan into the formula. Okay, fair question. And I think that in Afghanistan, <clears throat> there is still a sense that the the government itself is keen to maintain an American presence there. What then stands out as the obvious difference is that in Iraq you've had a government asking the Americans to go for a number of years now, or to give a timetable within which to leave, but where the Afghan government knows full well that the morning after the Americans go, as things now stand, it's going to be the Taliban Republic of Afghanistan and Hamid Karzai is going to be circulating his CV. Um, which some might argue is not such a bad thing, but <clears throat> I still remember the days when Hamid Karzai was considered part of the solution and not part of the problem. The thing is this, do we really believe that another 40,000 troops sent to Afghanistan on what can only be a fixed term basis are sufficient to make a permanent change to the political balance in that country? And I think this is the question that has bedeviled Barack Obama as he has taken so many weeks and had so many meetings with all of his military advisors to try and draft a policy. Because he knows he cannot commit troops indefinitely. He knows he, if he commits troops to a mission that will fail, that it's going to discredit his administration, it's going to demoralize the military. Every army needs to know that when they're sent to a mission, that there is a prospect of succeeding. And what success looks like needs to be carefully defined. And I think that's where the continued surge, uh, continued presence in Afghanistan is so problematic for the armies involved. And I don't think it's going to prove the exception to the rule that in the long run the foreign military presence serves to destabilize rather than to stabilize the region. So, question over here, please. Katrin? Um, it's not usually my, my inclination to defend the Americans, but uh, um, in this instance, can I raise it with you that what Obama has achieved on a positive note is to uh, give a better example of putting the, the U.S. House in order um, and uh, standing up uh, more truly to the ideals that the, you know, the United States is supposed to, to be standing up to. And I think that this is, a, 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 this is the most that, or not the most, but this is the first and most fundamental step that the United States can take, given uh, my belief that they cannot actually impose democracy on the region. Well, first let me say that I'm very grateful to you for coming to the defense of American policies. Let me put my cards on the table. If my accent hasn't already given me away, I am an American. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I'm a Barack Obama voter, and I'm very enthusiastic about this president. And I was very keen to see such a change in, in not just Middle East policy, but American foreign policy generally. So if in my attempt to damp down our enthusiasm that the rhetoric of Barack Obama 
might deliver substantive change. Um, it sounded as though I was trying to dismiss the effort to post a new American policy, then I'd like to correct that. I think that this has been a very important corrective to what have been many years of misguided American policies, misguided in the sense that I think that they have played into the hands of America's enemies, that they have made the world and America less stable, and that the damage done is going to take a lot of work to redress. So we, we needed the change of administrations, and I'm glad for it. What I would like to say is that whatever the front we're looking at, and as I said, Obama set out seven areas. On some of them, he was really quite fleeting. His reference to women's rights, his reference to development, he didn't develop very much. I sort of refocused on the ones that seemed to be the, the, the key objective. It's very clear that Obama does not wish to enter into the, uh, the change of government uh, or the, the change of politics that had characterized the Bush regime. There, there, there was a sense that um, America had a place to, to try and, and change the political system of other countries. And I don't think he wants to do that. So I don't think he's a big advocate of democratization per se. They've cut the budget for all the democracy promotion activities that had been put in place by the Bush administration. People like Ayman, Ayman Noor were, were beneficiaries of that. And one of the reasons why he's so disenchanted with Obama is because there's no American money backing democracy movements. I have very mixed views about that. I would certainly like to see a democratic process in Egypt. I hate the idea of Egyptian politics going dynastic and Gamal Mubarak succeeding his father without there being a contested election. Egyptian politics to me have always seemed better than that. They're more important than that. But I don't think it's America's place to try and uh, change the government of Egypt. And I think we have important reasons why we have to work with the governments of the Middle East as they stand now. And that's not a very ideal, ideologically nice position to take. But I, I think that anything else just leads you into an awkward position of trying to undermine legitimate governments because you don't like the way that they work. And, and when America gets into that, then we start getting into neocolonialism again. Uh, the gentleman in the second row, your hand up. Thank you. Um, I guess I'll counter your defense of America with some criticism. I'm sorry. Um, but I, I mean, going on the basis of what you were just saying, I'm wondering in what context um, American dialogue on, on Arab affairs cannot be disingenuous. Just because it seems to me that it, it's hard to promote the idea of democracy in the Middle East when your interests lie very clearly in supporting, I mean, um, you know, for one, it's not that we're just leaving the Mubarak regime to exist, right? We're also giving it a massive amount of aid and considering the presence of the Ikhwan and oil reserves in Saudi Arabia and the way that, you know, the Saudi government runs and the fact that our, and I say our as an American citizen, uh, the fact that our Put policy towards Israel will always be, you know, will never actually exist in a way that it will be equitable for the Palestinians, I mean, in, in my opinion, how can... How can we profess democracy in a way that isn't disingenuous? Because it seems clear to me that no matter what you say, our interests aren't necessarily in promoting democracy in the Middle East. They're in protecting American interests, as any American president should be interested in. No, it's a very good question, and posed in a way which does not leave me as an American feeling like I have to mount my horse to charge to the defense. So it's okay. It's okay. We can go there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's um, two, two, two ideas on that. One is when we look even at someone as nice as Barack Obama and who says such nice things, I would still always, he's an American president. He's an elected American official. He's got to deliver to the American voters or he's not going to be a second term president. 
So what I'm always looking for in these pronouncements is what is in America's interest. And then I might expect meaningful motion forward. I think that America genuinely believes that the continued conflict between Israel and the Palestinians is a radicalizing factor that would stop if they were to achieve a just and enduring peace. That the moment Palestinian suffering is off Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya, that there are going to be just that fewer number of young men willing to cinch uh, an explosive belt around their waist and go and inflict some horror somewhere. Okay? And so I, I actually think he's genuine on that particular issue. And I think he's frustrated as can be. I mean, Barack Obama came to power uh, in a November election, inaugurated in January, with two big elections coming. Okay? One in Israel, one in Iran. Why is it that bad news in the Middle East always comes from the countries that begin with the eyes? But it's, Israel and Iran gave election results that were the exact opposite of what Barack Obama hoped for. And now he's got to deal with not charming Zippy Livni, who could have been the inheritor of some very progressive uh, Olmert policies on trying to come up with solutions for Jerusalem and, and whatnot, and, uh, and instead finds himself dealing with Benjamin Netanyahu. Abigdor Lieberman is his foreign minister. You know, these are not nice guys to deal with if you want to try and cut deals with the Palestinians. But if that wasn't bad enough, then blow me down. After everybody seemed to think that we might get rid of Ahmadinejad in Iran, you know, in the worst bungled, I mean, the Middle East has some good experience of, bungle, of, of, of frauding up elections results. But I mean, I would have given the Iranians credit for doing it better. Um, the, the, the worst botched elections. And, uh, and that's what he's up dealing with. What's interesting on the democratization front is how the Obama administration has responded to the Iranian election results. Because they've actually been quite muted. They simply don't want to go there. They, they've condemned the violence against civilians. And they have not, you know, in any sense made a public endorsement of Ahmadinejad's victory. But they're simply not going to make an issue of it. And I think in that we're already seeing their willingness to accept electoral results that they can't ultimately change. The question on the left, the man in the red. Ali Sheikh al-Islami, Bloomberg News. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because on November 4th, um, obviously it was the 30th anniversary of the hostage taking in the American embassy in Tehran. And alongside that, opposition protesters came out to the streets again. Mm -hmm. And Iranians, being poetic and enterprising, started shouting, Obama, Yaba Una, Yabama, which means... Obama, you're either with them or with us, which is with the Ahmadinejad administration or with, with the people. So I think Obama has a very interesting problem here now. How is he going to deal with leaders who are not, let's say, 100% legitimate with their own people and keep his own policies unscathed? Thank you. Well, and remember that Obama's primary concern in Iran is not electoral reform or democratization. It's the nuclear issue. And I think in this, Obama's hands are somewhat tied because if he says we cannot deal with Ahmadinejad, then the rest of his Middle East policy is pretty much gone because then he can't make any meaningful negotiations on the nuclear question. The nuclear question got a lot of time in this Cairo speech. I didn't choose to go there because I didn't want to take us into Iran. I wanted to keep the focus on the Arab world. But that's a very big part of his Middle East policy. And so in a sense, 
He's got to leave open scope for negotiating or dealing with even the government of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad if he wants to be able to address the nuclear issue and prevent Iran from acquiring uh, a nuclear weapons capacity. Whether that's an end in itself or whether that's a necessary precondition or of, of softening up an Israeli position, I, I can't say. I'm not privy to that, those discussions, but it's clearly intimately interconnected. There's a question. You, sir. You. Thank you. John Downs. Has Obama got any power at all in, uh, as regards Israel, independent of Congress? Um, he can't cut the $3 billion aid program for Israel without going to Congress. Are there any other levers that he's got? You know, I don't think that Obama would get very far with sticks with Israel. I mean, I, I think he's gone as far with sticks as he can. There's been a kind of public shaming of Israel over the settlements issue. Again, remember, the international community is not very supportive of Israel's settler movement. And by holding this line, and even with the, all the waffle that's gone on, Obama's actually never reversed his policy, or at least not so far. He's not said, okay, well, look, we can deal with some construction, but let's get down to business and talk. He's, he's kind of kept to his line, and I think keeping that pressure up is, is quite extraordinary in Israel-American relations. But I'd like to take your question one step further. Because I think if you wish to achieve meaningful change in Israel, it would not be by trying to pressure the Israelis from outside. If Obama has made a tactical error with Israel, it's not by putting down a hard line. He's been hard enough. It's that he's not actually talked to the Israelis. He has no standing in Israel. His opinion poll ratings have fallen in the past two months from 8% to 4% in Israel. He is now, well, he already was, the least popular American president in Israeli history. Okay? And what that means is his scope to pressure the current government through its own electorate is zero. Everything he's doing is rallying the Israeli electorate behind a prime minister that most of them didn't vote for. Okay? But now he can actually show himself to have outfoxed the American president, to be setting his own agenda, and preserving Israel's interest against outside pressure. So really what I would say to Obama is don't even think about questioning American aid to Israel. You know, you're, it's an unbreakable bond thing, stick to it. But now plan a very high profile visit to Israel and give one of those heart-rending speeches that goes right over Mr. Netanyahu's head and goes straight to the Israeli voters with a vision of an Israel at peace and surrounded by its neighbors at peace that's gonna give them security, stability, an economy that won't stop Something they all have an interest in. We're back to self-interest again. If I see people acting out of their interests, I know that we're dealing with something serious. If it's about bringing good to the world, I'm worried. Please, in the front row. Uh-oh. Fulat Hadid, St. Anthony's College. Uh, Eugene, first of all, congratulations on the success of your book, and thanks for an illuminating uh, lecture. Uh, for the sake of argument, supposing instead of your book being called the Arabs a history, it was called the Arabs a future. Mm -hmm. um, you've been obviously influenced by the, a series of the Arab Human Development Reports. In fact, your quote about the desire for democracy comes 
from one of them. It's not by them. It's by completely independent. I totally agree with you. Totally independent body, and it has proven that it is the highest desire of any non-democratic region in the world came from the Arab world. So back to the future. How do you see this happening? I mean, let me have this along. We know that Islamism is taking over, and the next challenge could be this, like maybe copying the Turkish model, a marriage between Islam and democracy. But how are the Arabs going to sort of surmount the authoritarian regimes that govern them and achieve this great democracy that they so desire? Fulat, that is such a devilish question and one for which I have no ready answer. I, I can only say that meaningful political change in the Arab world, as anywhere in the world, must come from internal forces. It must come from domestic reform. It must be the wish and the will of the people for it to prove sufficiently strong to overturn such deeply entrenched institutions as are common across the Arab states today. And these, are, these are very powerful states. They're very rooted, established. They're hard stones to turn. And so it's going to take very strong popular movements. And, and maybe in that sense, it's, we, we shouldn't be so afraid of the specter of failure. Maybe it's enough that Obama pronounces good intentions and America lowers its level of engagement with the region. And in some places, that politics are left to take their natural course. I don't think it will lead to a Middle East that loves America particularly, or that's going to be particularly sympathetic to the West. Um, but we know what that looks like. I mean, I, I think that that holds for Iran. And to be honest, it's not such a bogeyman. You know, I mean, I don't want to see it go nuclear and all that, but if we want a good example of what a revolution that produced a country that's hostile to the West and wishes to go its own way, it looks like Iran, and frankly, we can live with it. And, and change, as we've seen after you know, 30 years since the revolution, is coming to Iran. But it's not coming because of pronouncements from outside. It's coming because people in Iran no longer like the way politics are being done in their country. And actually, they're willing to go out in the street and die for it. Now, what could be more powerful a force of change than that? And I think that the future for the Arab world holds certainly tragedy. I mean, I wish it didn't, but I can't see any way to avoid conflicts in the future because there are so many unreconciled and unresolved issues, and that will lead to pain and bloodshed. But one only hopes that the, at the end of it, there will be a vision of uh, you know, a new kind of government that will go further to meeting the aspirations of people in the Arab world. The gentleman in the background. Hello, my name is Matthias Dieterman. I'm from SOAS. I'm especially interested in Saudi Arabia, and um, I would like to ask you, how do you see the relation of the Obama administration with, with Saudi Arabia in comparison with uh, previous U.S. administrations? Thank you. Thanks for the question. I, I, I suspect you could tell me more on that question than I can tell you. I, I probably don't know as much about Saudi Arabia as you do. I read the newspapers and it's very interesting to see the degree of engagement between this administration and Saudi Arabia. I mean, I would say that Saudi Arabia gets the kind of attention and respect that Israel used to get from the Bush administration. That there seems to be a lot of exchanging of envoys and exchanging of messages and, and taking soundings and taking advice. And, uh, but it's done very quietly. It doesn't get a lot of press. And um, if there's a pressure that the Obama administration is exercising, it's clear that they want a Saudi commitment to engage with Israel so they can show the Israelis a meaningful, tangible gain 
that might win over Israeli public opinion to believe their partners out there for peace. This is a, this is a real preoccupation in Israel, and there's no point in avoiding it. That's a concern. But uh, the Saudis are obviously putting down clear lines of how far they're willing to go and under what conditions. And clearly, they're not willing to have any truck within Israel that's continuing to build settlements. So that might be a source of some difficulty in the Saudi-American relation. But um, it's clearly, it's a different relationship. There are ways in which the Saudi-American relationship was so close under Bush, and yet there are ways in which they were so deeply alienated. And uh, I think that kind of schizophrenia might be a thing of the past. I think there might be a more consistent American engagement with Saudi Arabia as a real heavyweight. And I think also America might be doing a great deal more with Saudi Arabia in terms of propping up the dollar and finance flows and whatnot. That, again, doesn't get a lot of news and attention, but um, it's a very important relationship. Hold on, there's a mic coming right your way. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my, my question initially was about the APAC and the fact that they, you mentioned they bought Congress and is there anybody to take on APAC kind of thing. And now I'm wanting to say, okay, where, where are we going to be in five, ten years' time with the second Obama administration? I, too, voted for Obama and hope for him. But. Well, I, I would only want to say that I, I probably wouldn't agree that APAC has, has bought Congress. No, no, no. I think APAC, I mean, I take very much the kind of Walton and Mearsheimer view of APAC, which is to say, it's just politics the way politics is done. And when it comes to lobbying groups, we've got lots of examples, and APAC's a pretty good one. But I think that there are uh, other forces at work in Congress, and that they're, they're showing a, a greater willingness to listen to other voices. And the one that's most interesting to me at the moment is this J Street movement, which is, J Street? Are you all familiar with J Street? It's interesting, if you go to Washington, D.C., there is no J Street, okay? There's I and there's K, but there's no J because it looks too much alike. So J Street, also J being J for Jewish, is the idea of not the Jewish opinion you get on K Street, which is where APAC is based. It's the voice you haven't heard in Washington's politics. This is the moderate Zionist voice that doesn't say Israel right or wrong and really is trying to moderate policies that are more leading towards a peaceful resolution of Israel's conflict with Palestine and its other neighbors. Okay? And I think J Street's actually a movement taking off, so watch this spot. They just had their, their first or second annual meeting last month. And if you Google them and look up the results, it's, it's a very interesting forum. Much smaller, much less wealthy. As it's new, so much less powerful. But the thing is that J Street taps into what I think might be broader mainstream Jewish American views. And in that sense, um, I think that there's probably somebody else to be listening to on the Hill than just APAC. Question over there, to my left. Um, thank you very much. I was curious, if, just thinking about the context, um, one of the things you didn't really mention during the course of, of your lecture about um, American foreign policy was, was the context of the Cold War. And I wonder to what extent um, you know, Obama's new approach or new direction is stimulated by a much more multipolar world and you know, perhaps the extent of influence of say the EU which you kind of alluded to but also perhaps China as well. You know I'm not sure whether we're in a truly multipolar world and if we are in one I don't know that the EU is such the partner that it should be. I get very frustrated to see the EU not assume its critical weight in sort of international affairs in international politics. 
And if any powers rivaling American supremacy at the moment, economically and politically, it's got to be China. So there, there may be in the 21st century a major reorientation of the poles, but I, it still feels to me, and this could be me blinded by my American vision, that we're still dealing with a unipolar world, but it's a unipolar world that is moderated by the forces of the global economy. And that global economy draws in other very important players and gives new prominence to places like India and Brazil, as well as to China. So how that plays out in, let's say, Middle Eastern politics remains to be seen. One trend that I'm watching with great interest is how so many of the states of the Arab Gulf in particular are looking to hedge their bets by deepening relations with China. And that works economically and it's working politically. And they seem to like doing business with China so much because there are no strings attached. There's no ideological baggage. It's just the shop is open and we're glad to deal with you because you got the energy we need and the markets we'd like to be selling to. And with that, China's really happy to do business without ever talking about democracy or human rights or any of the other embarrassing things that the United States might bring up to try and claim the moral high ground. You said no, second vote. You haven't mentioned the uh, United Nations resolution and I just wonder whether there's any mileage in reactivating or amending that and uh, in talking about uh, the, the things constraining the president in his own backyard I assume there are and I wonder if you agree two main constituents is the wealthy uh, New York Jews and other Jew Jewish bodies and also the Bible Belt uh, Christians far more numerous who many believe that uh, Jesus won't come again until uh, the whole of the historic lands of Israel are uh, back in uh, Jewish hands. Although the recent book by Shalom uh, Sands uh, puts casts a lot of uh, doubt on those assumptions as well. Thank you very much. Well, I think that there are a lot of doubts being cast on Shlomo Sands' thesis as well in terms of the, in, the invented people, but that debate is not one we have to engage in tonight. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that, um, I wasn't sure which UN resolution you were referring to, first off. 242? Right, so, so resolution 242. 242 is really interesting uh, because we've always taken it as the legitimate basis for land for peace. But at the time it was drafted, there wasn't actually a recognized Palestinian authority, at least not recognized by the international community. And so the land for peace envisaged by 242 would have seen the West Bank go back to Jordan and Gaza go back under some sort of Egyptian administration, Golan back to Syria, Sinai back to Egypt. And for the Palestinians, that was really, that was political death. So the Palestinians have always had a rather ambiguous relationship to 242, and it's only now that they are constituted as a political authority seeking you know, uh, sovereignty and independence on those territories that they, they use the language of 242. 242 has always been uh, problematic because it never spelled out in quite the precision required that a withdrawal from Arab territories meant a withdrawal from all Arab territories occupied in the June 1967 war. Prime Minister Begin, for instance, insisted that he had already fulfilled the commitments that Israel had to fulfill by withdrawing from the Sinai Peninsula. 
That was withdrawal from Arab territories, and we have now redeemed our commitments under 242. Please don't bring it up again. It's very bad taste. Um, you know, and, and I think um, you know, this remains uh, an issue that even the American government is taking a slightly softer line than, than would be ideal and not adhering to, say, the 4th of June 1967 borders, the green line, as it's called, as the internationally recognized and legitimate boundaries between Palestine and Israel. They're still not there yet, and I don't think that they're going to get there. I see you in the second row, please. Um, my name is Nora. Thank you very much for taking the trip. Um, I have two questions for you, in fact. One is, do you not think that all these statistics on um, the Arab opinion on Barack Obama are largely misguided, since the one country that is in, like, largely in favor is the UAE, a largely apolitical country, mm -hmm. where you cannot talk politics on newspapers, where they have the specter of Iran right next to them, and the Afra military base is one of the largest in such a, a country so small. Um, because they consider the, the U.S. The one, the one military that's going to help them if Iran decided to do something. So that's one thing. Let me answer that one first, and yeah, then, and then come ahead. to the second one. I'll Please. let you do the second, but I have a short-term memory, and you know, I'll, I'll lose the first question with the second. All right. The critical thing is, is well, two points, really. One, even with the surge in popularity recorded in the polls, you know, we're talking an improvement of 10, 15 percent maximum 23% in any given country. But in most cases across the board, most Arab countries remain deeply skeptical. So it's an improvement of the view of America since George Bush is out and Barack Obama has come in, but still hugely skeptical. And I wouldn't want the, the polls, as quoted, to give a false impression that there had been a sweeping wave of Arab support for the United States under Barack Obama. They're skeptical. Everything you say about the UAE is noted. And, and I, I have no you know, contradiction to offer. It goes a long way to explaining why they are, are the exception in having they a have slight majority favorable with, opinion. They have occupied islands that Iran has taken over. And there, they had, there are a lot of tensions between Iran and the UAE. So oh, they yeah. expect, they, that's the only reason they, they keep campaigning for military bases, one from France, of course, that you know about recently, and one from the largest you know, military base for the United States in the Persian Gulf, I believe, in a country so small. I mean, you'd expect it maybe in Saudi Arabia, but the UAE is really small, size of state. Maybe because it's so small, it needs the big base all the more. But let's go on to your second question. The, the opinion on the street in the UAE is more, you know, Iran is very scary. They have, they have our islands, we already have tensions, we don't want to deal with them. Your second um, question. One thing. And the other thing is um, what your opinion is on Barack Obama's um, refusal to ratify the Goldstone Report and um, what justifications he had for that. Right. Well, I think Obama's not alone in having rejected the Goldstone Report as having been perceived to be too critical of Israel and not sufficiently critical of Hamas. Now, I'm not a government official, so I don't have to mince my words here. Uh, I think it was a very disproportional conflict. This is why I quote the casualty figures of over 1,300 Palestinians killed and 13 Israelis killed. And I think if you have such disproportional use of force, to not come up with a totally balanced you know, accusation of, let's say, uh, Hamas activists on one hand and Israel, this to me is not a flaw in the Goldstone Report. 
Um, I think that what Goldstone might have written was something that was uh, a very honest report, but not a politically wise report. Because it's the EU as well as, I mean, the British have, have not endorsed the Goldstone report. The French have not. They've all abstained. They don't want to commit to it. Not least because of the implications that Goldstone would hold for the possibility of arresting, putting on trial people from Israel. So it creates difficulties for them that are politically unwise in a report that you want to make a part of the international community's legal action. And, and in that sense alone, what I fault the Goldstone Report. Do I think that they should have been as critical of Hamas as they were of Israel for what happened in Gaza last December, January? Absolutely not. But again, I'm not in the position of trying to run a government in the international community. And I think that those are very real constraints we have to take on board. Uh, we're running out of time, so I'll take the last group of questions in three. So there's one over there and uh, one over here. Uh, does anyone else have a question? And one in the corner over there as well. So, you, sir. Hello. Um, you suggested that Obama reach out to Israeli public opinion to persuade them, but at the same time, as you say, a lot of Israelis are very critical of the settler movement, including a certain number of conservative Israelis. So, and in fact, during the Bush years, it was often said that a lot of Israelis would actually welcome a certain amount of pressure on their government to you know, reduce the settlements. So, I mean, are, are you sure that, that he is pressure on that issue is, is what's alienated Israelis or do they feel generally that he is, is unsympathetic to them in a more general sense, do you think? Again, I only go by what I read, which is to suggest that public opinion is falling in line with Prime Minister Netanyahu in standing up against American pressure. And so in this, it seems to be counterproductive. I think it would go a long way to reassure Israeli voters or Obama to actually visit Israel and give them the sort of the warm embrace that they feel has been lacking. He's got to turn around those Again, I'm sorry with the opinion polls here. 4% ratings for an American president in Israel suggests that your policies are going to go nowhere in that country. Uh, hi, my name is Sebastian. I'd like to ask, in terms of Palestinian reconciliation, what has the U.S. administration's role been in promoting or thwarting this attempt? And even if something like that succeeds, what sort of value does it have in the long term? Now, come give me it again, because I was so distracted by the cut hair and the, the beard that I didn't recognize you. And so I have yeah. to admit, I wasn't paying attention to that. Sorry. In terms of Palestinian reconciliation attempts, yeah. what has the Obama administration done to for it, against it? And even if it's achieved, what sort of real value does it have in terms of Palestinian statehood, considering geographical distance and all of that? Sebastian, there's no way to engage in meaningful negotiations as a Palestinian entity of any kind, so long as the West Bank and Gaza are divided. And to me, what has happened since the 2006 election has been a classic example of divide and rule. And I think that in this, Palestinian politicians have failed the Palestinian people in, in both Hamas and in Fatah. And that if they had an inch of nationalist feeling to them, they would overlook their petty differences. And not that petty, they're big differences ideologically. But come together as a Palestinian people to fight for the Palestinians' rights. So that's what I think they should be doing. The outside communities played a huge role in fostering this divide. And if there's one thing I could ask the British government or the American government to change, it would be simply negotiate with Hamas openly. No preconditions, just open a dialogue with them and get them back to the political process. Because what we object to in the West, right, 
is the terror organization, not the parliamentary organization. So get them in the political process and out of the use of violence, and I think that you're already halfway to achieving your tangible goals. I don't know what policies this, this administration is doing to try and foster dialogue between Hamas and Fatah. I hope they're doing something there. But they will go nowhere if they try and foster negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis, so long as the Palestinians remain divided. I think that's fundamental. And the last question. Everything that uh, Netanyahu uh, does uh, appears to be directed internally to maintain the stability of his coalition. Do you think the Obama administration has reconciled itself to having to wait to the next Israeli election when either um, Likud has a stronger hand uh, or Kadima gets uh, elected? Well, it's very hard for any outside observer to plan in any meaningful way what might happen in Israeli politics because of the high volatility of coalitions. And you could have a change of policy provoke flight of one party in Netanyahu's coalition, but allow scope to bring a different one in. If, for instance, there were meaningful progress on a land for peace deal with the Palestinians, you could count on Likud flight from underneath Netanyahu's feet. But suddenly, I think Kadima might be very interested in coming in and, and playing in that, a coalition that was going towards those goals. So perhaps there's something short of waiting for the next election or trying to foster a new election or early elections that would rather deal with trying to address the Israeli party system as you would try to address the Israeli electorate. Israeli voters with a different vision of a political future that would hold benefits for Israelis that might make it politically acceptable for some parties to go with it. So, no, I don't think it has to wait till the next election. But I do think they have to engage more directly with Israel. And I, I say that as someone who's always been very sort of supportive of Israel's engagement with the Arab world, but I think that it's essential for American policies to succeed. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but if you've been whetted your appetite by this excellent talk, there'll be copies of the book on sale in the foyer outside, and Eugene is happily going to sign them if you come back in here. And it just remains for me to thank him on your behalf and on my behalf as well for such an excellent talk. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all very much. Thank you.